So, so once again, we're continuing this series called Righteous uh, Resistance. Now, if you remember, it started uh, during February and we focused it because it was Black History Month. We focused this idea on moments of righteous resistance in God's history and then brought that into more recent history of God's telling through righteous resistance in the civil rights movement and other figures in black history and just kind of giving us this example and teaching us what it means to have a sense of righteous resistance. And then we decided, well, maybe it's bigger than that and we're going to continue this series even all all the way up into Eastern. So what we're going to do is focus on disciplines or other moments that we can learn from, but now we've settled into Jesus. All right. And so last week, Ken talked about Jesus's interactions with a man named Bartimaeus who was blind. Today, we're going to talk about uh, maybe a little bit more of an unusual um, story for us. And then as we move towards Easter and we solidify this idea of what righteous resistance, in the epitome of what righteous resistance is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and so just be asking God, teach us what it means, Lord. Tell us how and where and what ways we should be evaluating ourselves and looking through all of these different um, uh, stories as examples for us. And so today is going to be a little bit of a, maybe a different one than, than one we have typically looked at. A little bit um, at, at, the, at the outset looks less practical, but I think I'm going to show you how in fact it is. Um, and I'm going to start with just this quick story. Um, so uh, in, our, in, our, in my time in ministry in New Orleans, we had uh, a, a lady in our church um, who, who every once in a while have kind of these outbursts inside of our um, uh, congregation, inside of our service. She's a faithful lady. Um, she served in areas, was a, uh, you know, one of the first to be at the serve days and, and the last you know, to leave. She served communion during our services in different situations like that. And um, at one point, our, the pastor who was uh, planting that church, and I was just the worship and, um, and the youth pastor in that context, um, I was the only pastor on staff because he had gone on to take a ministry position in Owensboro, Kentucky. And so um, as I'm there, I, have the, I overhear a conversation with our administrative person. Um, she's having, it was a little bit of an unusual conversation as we're having these um, back and forth. I said, hey, what's going on? Is there anything that you need help with? Uh, she said, you know, for the most part, there, she, she can be kind of needy and I just take care of it myself and I'll pray for her over the phone. But there is kind of some odd things that have been happening. And so she goes on to describe to me that she has been having some, what she would say is supernatural events, seeing things, being, um, at, at eventually we recognize being tormented by something that was evil. And so in the midst of this, I said, well, has anyone gone over there just to, like, we kind of just dismissed it while I'll pray for you over the phone. Has anyone gone to our house to actually say, can I pray with you? I don't think so. And then she looked at me and said, I would love for you to be the one to do that. So I grabbed a couple of other pastor friends. We planted a church there. So I grabbed their, their pastor and someone else, just some, some people that were close to us. We stop beforehand. We pray um, in a parking lot and then go over to um, this woman's house. And um, so, so here is how this unfolded. And I'm going to give it the kind of the quick edited version of, of this. Um, but, but I had this, um, I had to do a little bit of research. I had some experience maybe with this, but um, went and interviewed a couple people, read some books, um, and realized that this, this woman had a spirit that was indwelling her, not just one, multiple. And it hit me because as I was going through this process, praying over her, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. I do it one, two, three times, and I finally look at my friends. I say, we're going to do this one more time. And, uh, you know, we did, we did our due diligence. We prayed for this woman, um, and then we'll just try to help her through other means, mental health and other things like that. Well, I sit down, engage her eye to eye, um, and in this situation, you know, it's kind of if you say if, you know, if there's anything going on or if there's something inside, it just knows that you don't know, and it hides. And so I say, you know, in the name of Jesus, I command you. I kind of had this process of going, um, and to my shock, 
her head kind of cocks back and changes her face. The tone of her voice is completely different. She says, I will never let her go. To which I said an expletive in my head. Oh, shoot. Looked at my friends and thought, what did I just do? Because if I'm 100% honest, I didn't think this was going to work. I didn't think anything was going to happen. I look at them and I remember, don't take your eyes off the lady in front of you. Back here. We go for about six or so hours talking to things um, through her, trying to find ways to help her let go of the way in which the strongholds that they were holding on to in this woman's life. Um, and it goes deep. And she had a history with the satanic church and, you know, was married to someone that was a priest in it. And so there's, there's some, you know, reasons why this would make sense in this situation. Um, and then uh, in there, um, at one point, this thing looked at me and said, I know what you did on Tuesday at this time. <laughs> And I'm going to tell this whole room about it if you don't stop. It knew what I was doing on Tuesday at a certain time and told me this is a sin and I'm going to tell everybody in this room, leave this woman alone. To which I quickly made a decision, confess the sin because it was against the people in the room. I'm going to have to talk to you about this later. I repent before you right now. They look at me and say, yeah, we are going to have to talk about that later. And then I proceed and it changes tactics. I knew that it knew me better than maybe I had thought that it knew me. It threatened to tell everyone about these things in the room. It knew all kinds of things about my life and other people's lives, things that she would never have any access to knowing. And, uh, you know, over the long time of being there, we eventually decided it was time to take a rest. It didn't fully, um, you know, come to what I would say is a victorious moment, although there were some things that she needed to work on and process. Do you really want to let some of these things go so that we can get this dealt with? Um, And it never fully came to its conclusion. Now, here's what I want to say to that, Um, because I don't usually tell this story. If you've maybe heard it in private uh, because it was appropriate, this isn't something I would preach on necessarily, except the content for today made a lot of sense that it would raise to surface some ideas. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you don't have a story like that, right? Some of you may have a story like that, but this is the kind of thing that you call a pastor for and get that guy with the little white, you know, collar thing in this room now to deal with this situation. So those are every once in a while calls that I will go on. And you probably haven't had that experience, though I believe it's more common than maybe we would realize. And I don't say this story at all for the idea of shock factor, but to show you that the things that happen spiritually have an effect on the material world. And that's what I want to kind of surface over this sermon. I want you to remember that greater, in you, greater is he in you who is in, than he who is in the world. All right, This isn't for scaring people. I don't want anyone walking away afraid um, you know, after today. But my point is this, that the separation between the unseen and the seen, the tangible and the intangible, spiritual material is not as separate as you and I tend to think. At least how we operate on a regular basis. So when I jumped into the car to leave this woman's house, I pull over a few blocks away and just kind of stop to consider the moment before I go home. I had some worship music playing, and I remember thinking in my head, uh, if I could go back to the Eric eight hours ago before when I was heading to this place and ask you if you thought this stuff was real, that Eric would have said, of course I think those things are real. I probably think that that's more real than most people around me. And I would look at that Eric and slap him in the face and say, you don't believe anything's real, man. You don't know what you're about to get into because the experience that's about to happen is going to completely shift your perspective about material and spiritual. Like you don't know anything about any of these things. And so on one hand, I felt this sense of like, 
the intangible was so present, more present than I ever thought before because I had been in the presence speaking with this woman, right, who is a, a, a person I would say has a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're, and we're ministering to her, but on the other hand, I had been in the presence of a liar, something haughty, something that accused me, something disgusting, something that you would say is unclean and way more real than I had ever, ever thought or imagined was reality. And so I put this worship music in the car, and I think to myself, if the evil that I just encountered is that real tangible and present, how much more present is the love and power of the God of the universe? And I imagine God being in the seat next to me, like Jesus riding co-pilot in my little car, and I turned up this music and just spontaneously erupted with praise because I was so thankful that God had protected me, that he guided me in that situation, but more than that, that he made, he exposed my inability to fully understand the presence of the unseen and therefore the presence of God in my life every single moment of every single day at all times. And it was this mind-blowing moment for me. Now, we need to realize that the mental separation between these two things is not necessarily the reality. The reality is that these two worlds exist at the same time, these two aspects of one world simultaneously. Now, before we, we jump in, i got two disclaimers. The things I'm going to teach, we're going to talk about the Gerasene demoniac today. The things that I'm going to teach come uh, from the research and a, and a pastor that I was able to um, see speak, uh, Pastor Gabriel Salguero. He spoke at a conference. He's, he's um, Gordon Conwell Seminary, if you're familiar with that. He's, he's a part of their, um, their staff. Um, but a guy by the name of Albert Tate, who's just a known, very well-respected pastor, gave uh, a, a conference called Discipling Out Racism. And so the context that he was giving was meant to be in the scope of racism, but I want us to let this overflow into other areas of our life, including but not limited to racism specifically. The second thing I want to remind you of is a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I spoke on Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and my point really was that the things that are tangible have spiritual implications behind it. Today is the equal opposite reverse of that, that when there is something overtly spiritual in front of us, it actually has connection to tangible reality in front of us. And so that's kind of, I'm just letting the cat out of the bag, that's where I'm going with today before we kind of jump into it. Um, with all of those things kind of being said, with that set up, what I want to do is invite you to open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Oh, by the way, I mentioned we we're going to get some physical Bibles. If you'd like to grab a physical Bible, leaf through that bad boy, take it home because you don't have one. Everything's digital now. Those are on the communion tables on the bottom shelf there. So feel free to grab one of those. We just wanted to have something that if, if, you, if you wanted to have a physical Bible or take something home with you, um, feel free. Those are our gift to you. Um, Mark chapter 5. Everyone good? Everyone holding your breath? You're like, where is this? What could this possibly end up with? Well, let's do this together. This story takes place immediately after Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so, so see this in your mind's eye. He just expressed, demonstrated his sovereignty over nature. He will do the same for the spirit realm. But I want to suggest to you that he is also asserting his power over governing authorities. Not the map yet, but we're coming to it. Thank you. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They, the disciples, right, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet them. 
Now, before we get too deep I want, uh, into the details of the man in the tomb, I want us to note this area. We can throw up that map really quick. I want you to see a map of the area. The boat makes landfall, so the sea is the one that's being crossed right in that center. Um, it's more of like what we would think of as a very large lake than we would think of as a sea, so you can actually see across to the other side. This bottom right-hand corner, it says Decapolis, is the area that they're landing. They're making landfall in the bottom right-hand southeast side of that kind of, that, uh, uh, I guess, tornado shape, I don't know what you call it, but the bottom right-hand side of that lake area. The area that they make landfall is called the Decapolis, which is a literal translation of Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. So it's a collection of ten cities, may have gone up or down a city here, eleven or nine, but they just kind of in general called it the Decapolis to refer to this area, similar to what we say is like a metro area or the region, right? Chicago, you guys have the region? That's a thing, right? I didn't make that up. The region, multiple suburbs, you know, all these different areas. It's a non-Jewish area. Farmers here raised pigs specifically, which is forbidden by Jews, making the area in general an unclean piece of land, and it had thoroughly pagan cultic practices. When I say pagan, I don't mean that in the pejorative kind of name-calling way. I mean in a literal sense it is a pagan kind of cultic practices taking place um, according to the Greek and Hellenistic influences there. Roman, the Roman um, rule. And when it was founded, it was intentionally kept separate from that left side, the, the um, west side of that, where the Jewish people are all hanging out. They wanted to have their own little area. And on the, um, uh, in the midst of the, the incorporation, the founding of this city, the Decapolis, the ten cities, it was a group of military veterans, formerly a part of Alexander the Great's army. All right? So an entire city, group of cities, made up of military veterans. These armies were organized into units of thousands, two to five thousand, called what? Does anyone know? Legion. Oh, you're going to start to see where we're going to go with this, yeah? Legions. As you would imagine, military life flowed into the rest of the city. It built into its ranks, its authority structures, its place socially and politically. All of it is very categorically arranged because their whole lives have been categorically arranged through the living of this military life. And it created this hierarchical caste system called patron-client um, relationships. You can look that up later if you're interested in it. Um, but it harbored the, the abuse of those who would be considered the clients in this situation. Social, economic, um, and even sexual abuse were present in this context. So here's a quote from one scholar. His name is Ray Vanderlaan. Some of you may have heard of him. He specifically kind of teaches on Jewish studies, but he writes this about this area. These towns typically had Hellenistic designs with theaters where lewd plays were performed. Temples were sacrificed, offered to pagan gods, coliseums where nude athletic games and gladiatorial contests took place. Think Gladiator, right? The movie Gladiator. Each city controlled the areas surrounding it. Spreading their Hellenistic philosophy and religions, the farmers of Galilee, that's the, the Jewish people, could see the sophisticated Gentile world barely eight miles away and the steep cliffs of the eastern shore and the riotous lifestyle and pigs could certainly be heard and found there. So imagine this. I, I worked on a, on a, um, in Idaho, Priest Lake, Idaho, on a, a, like a lodge resort for a summer, trying to earn cash for, during the summer for my college. And um, I could hear, I remember in the middle of the night, we would have uh, you know, festivals and little things that would happen, and there was other lodges on this lake. And it's a large lake. But if you were quiet, 
you could hear people celebrating and partying at the other lodges across this lake. For some reason, sound travels really well across water. In fact, there are times I could be really quiet and make out two people talking to one another while they were sitting in the outside porch on this deck. This is like a mile away, two miles away. So there's this way in which, think, as you're, as you're um, doing your lifestyle on this side, the Jewish lifestyle, you can hear all of the events taking place. Like, think how loud the gladiator situation, you know, the whole thumb up, thumb down thing, they're going to kill this person or not kill this person. You can hear all of these things taking place because it travels really well. So the lifestyle, the ruckus kind of lifestyle over here affects the day-to-day of the Jews across the street, which put in their minds what kind of a place this was. So Vanderlaan just says this at the end. They viewed the land, the Jews viewed the land as a place of expelled ones, the worshiper, sorry, the worshipers of Baal. Jesus' disciples probably hesitated when he suggested we're going over there. So catch that. We're going to go across the way. They can hear gladiator battles taking place, the farms, all maybe smell it at times, right? And they're like, no, that's like we don't go over there, Jesus. That's not something we do. All right, so let's continue here. Verse 3, it says this. So the man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with chains, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, and this is a very important question, what is your name. That's a weird thing to ask. Right? Like, I don't, it's not typical that you would go speaking to impure spirits and asking them to identify themselves. So you have to ask yourself, why would he do that? What's even going on in this situation? Well, Pastor Gabriel Salguero, he points out this really unique aspect of this that I hadn't considered because he says when Jesus asks what is your name, what Jesus really wants to know is what is the identity of the thing or things in this context which are influencing this man. Pastor Salguero, he digs deeper, likening it to the idea of discipleship and formation in your life. So what has influenced this man to become the person he is when Jesus encounters? It's so overt and clear when we're talking impure spirits, but when we talk about our lives, we have to ask that question differently. What has been shaping and informing our lives? What influences us? What forms the decisions of this man to live in tombs, to cut himself? What, what, forces, what forms and shapes our lives to make the decisions that we make? And in this case, we have a heavily wicked, highly influential spirit inhabiting this man. And then Pastor Selgrave, he urged the audience to ask the same question to yourself. And so I want to stop and do the same right now. What's inside of you? What is influencing you? What discipleship have you um, undergone that shapes and makes you the way that you are and the way that you view the world? His direct words were this, re-discipleship begins with asking the question, what's already in there? So what is already in there? The context again was about preaching about, learning about, and engaging racial dynamics in America. And so he wanted us to ask if the only resources, commentaries, books, you know, as pastors, institutions that you follow are mostly white, then you have to ask that question, what's in there? 
And if those elements had, had pieces of racism in it, then what's inside of you building your theology, fortifying you as a leader? And obviously, he's causing us to confront ourselves and to say, wait a minute, have I been discipled by racist resources, institutions, societies, structural ideas? All right? I want to ask you to ask yourself that question, but I want it to overflow even further. Think bigger than just that. What about the citizenship you hold in America? How does that influence your decisions and, make this, and, and help form what you do and don't do? The economic system that you operate in, what it allows you to do or not allow you to do. What influences do you allow? Uh, what news sites, right? That's, that's a good one. All right, let's sit with that one for a little bit, right? What news sites do you listen to? Talk radio, do you internalize music, magazines, media, social media sites, people that you follow on social media? All of these things are forming us. And so the question is, who are you? Let that question be asked of yourself today. Who are you? Now, continuing in this direct story, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the Spirit replies, my name is, what is it? Legion. For we are many. That term should be familiar because it would have been obvious to the disciples in this moment. They are very well aware of the fact that there are Roman legions who make up the military colony just over the hill behind this man. It's inseparable. Then they go on to say this, a large herd of what? Pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. All right, so, so what's with the pigs? I mean, how many different variations of this telling have you had? It's like Wil- Wilbur-looking little pink guys jumping off of this thing. It's almost like sat like, like those cute little pigs. What happened? Well, the unclean spirits, here, here's a, there's a couple of layers to this. Layer one, the unclean spirits are sent into the unclean animals, at least according to the Jews, which are then drowned into the sea. Don't let this pass you. This wording is eerily reminiscent of the moment when Pharaoh's army is drowned into the sea in Exodus. The paramount example of righteous resistance, like, like the archetype coming straight out of the Old Testament, You also might have realized that the herd is a part of the Gentile economy, right? They are feeding a Decapolis, a multi-city environment with pork, with these pigs. And so they are trying to raise enough up to be able to sell, and it definitely floats. So listen, that's a lot of livestock to lose in one fell swoop, or one big splash, I guess. I wasn't sure how that joke was going to go over. It's probably probably a little bad taste. We'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Need a little levity in these kind of conversations. But they're more than just a source of income and food for the Romans. In fact, they are representations of the foundations of the Roman Empire who printed pictures of pigs on their coins. I think we have a picture of that or a couple of different ones. Sorry, Mallory, I should have given you a heads up of how I was going to do this. Now, look at, look at what we got here. We got, we, we got a couple Wilbers, right? Like that, 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 like you grease him up and he could run forever. You can't catch him. You got boar looking ones, right? The less attractive looking ones. Is there, oh, oh, at the top left? No joke. That's a pig in armor, Roman armor. There's a pig with wings up there. Like when pigs fly, right? There's a pig with wings. This was a continual stamp that was used as a representation 
of their economic system. Now, I'm going to take you one step further. William R. Harwood, he's a scientist. He's not a follower of Jesus, so he's going to refer to Mark as a fable. I'm just, just have a heads up on that. He's not a Christian, but he writes um, very specifically on some of these um, uh, mythologies and representations, symbols, in a book called Mythology's Last Gods, and this is what he says. Since the fall of the city a few months earlier in 70 CE, Jerusalem had been occupied by the Roman 10th Legion, whose emblem was a pig. Mark's reference to about 2,000 pigs, the size of the occupying legion, combined with the blatant designation of the evil beings as legion, left no doubt in the Jewish minds that the pigs in the fable represented the army of occupation. So he's going to bring it together. Mark's fable, in effect, promised that the Messiah, when he returned, would drive the Romans into the sea as he had earlier driven their four-legged surrogates into the sea. And then you take that and overlap it with the fact that we just reminded ourselves that he did the same thing to Egypt. Now look, maybe you already see where this is kind of going. Mark Mark is pointing out this series of connections. He's got multiple symbols at play that you maybe, if you just kind of read it, you're like, great, this guy got saved, he's free now, that's a good situation. That is good enough on its own, but when you start to realize the context that he's speaking in, what you're watching here is that Jesus' actions here are kind of like a prophetic threat to Rome. Like, think of what he's doing here. Look, man, I disrupted the spiritual occupation of this man and gave you a sample of what I can do to your economy. One move. But it is nothing compared to what I'm about to do to the powers, principalities, dominions that fuel your worship, your social structures, and your economy. So look, Jesus is saying, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're the Roman governors, whoever's out there, you watch Jesus, you know, the pigs are off, and then he looks up at you. There's something created in that moment. Jesus is saying, the legion that empowers your legions is powerless compared to me. He is in full control, and he says this. Remember, remember this. We, we think of this at Christmas with the little baby Jesus, but remember this. Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. (laughs) That's crazy. When I saw the parts, I've like, we've kind of taken bits and pieces and turned it into something that's more for us um, in our context. When as I'm leading this, I'm, uh, jo- Pastor Jody, Pastor Sam were in, the, uh, you know, in that meeting with us, uh, in that conference with, with me, and I'm just looking at him like, this is nuts. This is what is going on. This was there the whole time, and I didn't see it. And I just put away. I'm like, I'm preaching on this at some point. It's coming back. <laughs> Jesus is not just freeing a man. He's not just asking you and I to confront our own evil things that reside in us, though we should do that. He is showing us how to confront the social and systemic evils as well as, because, as, well as our, our own individual kind of evils. And so, so kind of the idea is if the devil is up in one, he's also up in the other one. 
He's going to be in both of those situations, whether it's individual or systemic. He's going to have a part in one. He's going to have a part in the other one. And God is fixing to bring the entire thing crashing to the ground. Bring it under his rule with one true power authority, a perfect economy, a perfect government. And this is why the people respond with this in verse 14. If you've read it before, you're like, why did they respond like this? Well, here it is. Those, verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town, in the countryside. The people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Notice the contrast. We have a man who is ravaged by a wicked spirit, living in turmoil, and he has moved from chaos into peace because of the presence of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we have a group of people benefiting from a wicked social system. They are moved from peace into turmoil and chaos because of the presence of Jesus Christ, and they want him to leave. Like, man, you, you got to go. Right? I've done it once before. I'll quote Big Worm again. If you're messing with my money, you're playing with my emotions. You, you, now, you're, now you're messing with our money, Jesus. There's, a, there's two or three towns. They were to receive you, but you have to get up out of our town now. So they asked Jesus to leave, and that's, that's not different often than what we will sometimes do, right? Like, things were running fine before you got here, before your presence got here, and then you stop and ask the question, well, I mean, fine for who? who? Who is it fine for? And you must be aware that for some of us, the presence of Jesus will be peace, restoration, deliverance, but for others, the upending of spiritual and physical strongholds will come as a cost, and forecast will be too high. And we'll ask Jesus to go to a different town. Just please move on. I don't need this. Or maybe we'll create a version of Jesus in our image so that we can just ignore the wickedness that we might be participating in. And let's, let's finish this out real quick. And I got one last twist for us. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So what does Jesus do? After he expels a man filled with a legion of demons, he sends him like a torpedo right back into the heart of the Decapolis filled with legions to proclaim that there is a new power, a new authority, a new economy, a new society, a new system, and he's going to call it the kingdom of God. Now, now, now here's, here's the next step. Instead of destroying them, though, this is what he does. Instead of tearing down the social system, the economy, the cultic practices, which he has well demonstrated he could do at any moment, and here's the twist, he looks into the eyes of the Roman oppressors and he makes them an offer. He offers them a seat at the table. He offers them an alternative community. You can be a part of this. 
You're welcome at this table. Now, you're going to have to surrender to a new kingdom. In fact, you, you, you have the opportunity to become saved and to willingly join this kingdom. But remember, if you say yes, it is going to cost you something. Because reckoning an unjust system benefits somebody, and they're going to have to be asked to lay down those benefits at some point. So you're welcome. This is a torpedo of grace. This is a torpedo of gospel movement. This is a torpedo of reconciliation, the offering to be able to come in. How confident are you that they'll say yes? <laughs> Some of us are just going to say, nah, nah like I, I, what I have now is better. Or, or like... I, I have philosophies and ideas, and I'm going to take a little bit of this and that, and I'll take some Jesus into the midst of that as well. That's fine with me. So, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. Sure, I can keep doing the things that I want to do, the things that I've been doing, benefiting from this old system, right? Perhaps we've all said these same things some way or another at some point in our lives, but all of these are actually just different versions of, Jesus, I need you to go to the next town, I'm not willing to say yes fully until I'm ready to say I am about your economic, your kingdom, the way you build your economy, the way you build your society and all the things moving and revolving around it. And for those who follow him now, calling him Lord, those of us here who would say, I am in the kingdom of heaven, I have decided to follow Jesus, like the song says, it's more of a heart check to say how far have we come into alignment with what Jesus is doing. It's also an example of what it looks like to love mercy, to do justly, to act humbly, walk humbly with our God in the context of an empire that's exploiting the vulnerable and taking advantage of the marginalized. Now, my hope today, again, you know, all of these things that we have talked about from the beginning story has really just been to raise our awareness to the fact that these things are so much more intricately aligned than we might have realized. The veil between spiritual material is much less than we might have realized. Seen and unseen is just a little thinner than it was before you walked in today because we are the righteous resistance standing between the world as it is and as it should be. We are the ones that are meant to be the fullness of the kingdom of heaven here and now. There are spiritual realities embedded into our day-to-day -day lives. It's interactive with our systems. It's intertwined with the governing structures of our world. It takes advantage of the economies of the day, whether your preference leans towards socialism and progressivism or capitalism or, uh, I don't know, whatever ism you want to add into that. All right? I don't want to leave anyone out. There is an organized spiritual effort by the enemy scheming and intending to thwart God's people to steal, kill, and destroy. This is why Paul over and over again is like, hey, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against dominions, authorities, powers, this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we are meant to resist God, at, uh, resist, resist with God's help as righteous people. Peter says, be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So, so here, here it is. Like that, that veil is much thinner, hopefully, than it was before. 
But what I want you to see is that there is this interaction of the things that we are called to do, that we don't, we don't just get to stand back and act like the things we do don't have spiritual implications. We also don't go after uh, you know, demon hunting as if we can just satisfy ourselves off of prayers and prayer warrior. All that stuff is great. I want us to do it without ever addressing the material, physical issues that are being affected by those spirits. It's a both and. The physical and the spiritual are a both and that we have to and have the responsibility to righteously resist. And so common ground, here's, here's our application. Go back to the beginning. Who are you? What's formed you? What's forming you currently? Is there a part of your discipleship that needs to be discipled out? What kind of systems then, too, are you participating in? What are you building things towards? What societies, what economies, how does it evaluate others? Does it make room for the Imago Dei to care for all people? How does it identify people? And if changing, challenging, or correcting costs you something, are you willing to do it? In light of a perfect government structure in the kingdom of heaven, which is what we have to look forward to, nothing escapes the the scrutiny between the events of the fall and the events of the new heavens and new earth. Everything should be put on the altar and willing to be weighed against the heavenly kingdom as right or wrong, all right? So don't assume you found the right one and everyone else needs to get on board. Weigh it out. Take some time. Evaluate it. Here's a quick litmus test. If the things feel really good right now, you can be somewhat positive that you're on the benefiting side of that equation. Right? And, and my challenge there is just to diversify you, the people you talk to, the, um, the, the sources you go to. Uh, maybe you need to even diversify neighborhoods or what part of the city you tend to hang out in. You need to diversify your worldview so that you can hear those who would maybe say, this is not the way it's meant to be. I, I thought it was working out well. Well, it is for you, but not for everyone. So I want to end with this and we'll pray. The vision is both the end and the beginning. It's a reclaiming of the way God ordered things in the Garden of Eden. You've heard me say this a hundred times. But it is also us looking forward to the way things will again be put back together, renewed, reshaped in the new heavens and new earth where everything is properly working. Human thriving takes place. Equitable uh, human flourishing is found in every single inch of our world. And we are given the power as the people of God called to use that power to participate in the here and now. And so today, my call to you all is, may we as a church resist legion in any form it tries to take. That we would see as Jesus prayed, the kingdom of heaven become true here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, thank you for, um, for your word, first of all, God, and the many layers of reading something and getting a new perspective and just hearing the way in which uh, Mark has brilliantly brought these things together to tell two stories simultaneously of the physical, tangible, and the spiritual unseen. So, Father, would you break down demonic strongholds, God? But Father, I want to see the breakdown as those, be, uh, as those become demolished, Lord, 
as those things come crashing to the ground, Lord, will we see the physical realm echo that? I don't just want the demon of patriarchy gone. I want patriarchy gone. What will that cost me? I don't want to just see the demonic force of racism gone. I want to see racism gone. Father, whatever institutions and things that we have done in our own name out of other means besides the fullness of your kingdom, Lord, correct us and just give us softened hearts, Lord. Let us rejoice in the doing of it of our own volition before you make it true and we are forced to understand the reality of the new heavens and new earth. If valleys rise and mountains fall, would valleys willingly just come down? and lift valleys. And Father, thank you so much um, for your presence here. <laughs> Would your presence um, make uncomfortable those who are too at peace with the status quo, and would it give peace to those who can tell that something's not right? We ask for this right now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.